thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight, we're going to go through chapter 19 of the book of Genesis. This is the chapter that deals with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Very famous chapter, but uh, also very difficult chapter for a number of reasons. We recall from chapter 18 that Abraham walked with God and bartered with him over the fate of of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when I say Sodom and Gomorrah, I don't only mean Sodom and Gomorrah. There were actually five cities that were going to be uh, punished by God's wrath. And in the end, Abraham managed to, 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 managed to get God to say that if he were to find ten righteous men, he would spare the city. And, and in this chapter, we see that there were not even ten righteous men to be found. Last time, we didn't really spend much time on what it means to be a righteous man. And man here is taken generically, by the way. It doesn't mean uh, the male. It means man or women. What does it mean to be righteous? Most of us, because of perhaps a lack of formation tend to think that righteousness is something that is measured by ourselves. If we feel good about ourselves, then we're righteous. If we have a sense that we're doing what is right, therefore we are righteous. The fallacy is that, as I had mentioned to you before, our conscience is not infallible. Our ability, our conscience's ability to determine right from wrong is not infallible. It can be skewed. It can be subverted. It can be torqued to the point where we see wrong as being right and right as being wrong. And there are many, many examples that uh, I can give you even from modern life. And that's why last time and the time before, I think, I pointed out to you that a good, a good warning sign for us is when we hear of a proposition that may be contrary to our level of comfort. So, for instance, say you hear a preacher that is encouraging you to tithe. Give 10% of your net income 5% to the church and 5% to charities. 
that statement may not sit well with your budget and may not sit well with your conscience. And you and I may be tempted as an initial reaction to justify why we would not do such a thing. And there lies the danger. The danger is that we self-justify ourselves. We're perfectly capable of justifying our actions. We have to be careful. I'm not necessarily saying that you go ahead and do it, although I, would, I do encourage you to think about doing it. But we have to be careful. Because if every time that there is a proposition moving us to do good, encouraging us to go beyond what we think is possible, if we resist it, then effectively we're the ones who are in charge of what is good. Hence, we become self-righteous. And that is the difference between heaven and hell, between righteousness and self-righteousness. That one word, self. There are other things that would perturb us. The majority of Catholics these days are perturbed by the notion that contraception is a mortal sin. If you were to tell them you're contracepting, therefore you will go to hell, that would be very perturbing for them. Why? Because their conscience is torqued. They assume it's up to me and my wife to decide, and no one else has anything to say. We are the one who decide. And obviously you can hear the echo of the words spoken by the devil to Eve. You shall know good and evil. That means you will be the one to decide what is right and what is wrong. So the mark of a righteous person is first and foremost humility. That's the first mark. And humility, by the way, is not false humility. As in, you make a really nice cake and somebody goes to you and say, Wow, what an amazing cake that was. It was great. It was the best cake I've, I've ever had. And you answer back and saying, Oh, that was nothing. That is not humility. That is false humility. That is actually pride. The other extreme that one has to avoid is for you to say simply with a smug smile on your face, I know. I'm the best. Obviously, that is another aspect of pride. So how do you resolve it? When they asked Mother Teresa in an interview, they said, Mother, people say of you that you're a saint. What do you have to say? Mother Teresa's answer was, everybody's called to be a saint. She didn't deny it. But what she did then, she proceeded to give glory to God. And that is the right way to be humble. Is to recognize, humility is nothing more than seeing things in the light of God. Humility is truth. There is no humility apart from truth. You see things in the light of God. If God gave you the talent to become the best pianist, then it is part of your humility to say, I am the best pianist. And then you add, glory be to God. You recognize you're not the source of the gift. You just so happens to be the recipient. That is humility. And it's a virtue that has to be worked on. So righteousness, the first thing is humility. And as I said, one has to work on it. Therefore, if you and I are not spending time every day, or maybe at least once a week, if you haven't done it every day, in examination of conscience against the moral law, against the Ten Commandments, 
If I don't take time to examine myself, my conscience will get torqued. That's why it's really important for us to do so. To take time to examine our conscience and say, how am I living in, in the eyes of God? How am I living today in the eyes of God? What have I done that needs to be corrected? It's course correction. And if you actually take on this habit to do it, guess what? It transfers over to other things in your life. Like what? Well, like relationships. It becomes easier for a man to ask his wife, how am I doing? Every man's goal should be then when they die, and hopefully they'll die before their wives, their wives will write on their tomb, I had nothing to complain about. Because if they can do that, they're really close to be a saint. Your wife is the one that knows you better than anybody else. If she can say that about you, you've done a great job. But you can't do it on your own. You've got to have to ask her, okay, what do I have to do? Likewise, wives, husbands. If you take the habit of self-examination, it's a lot easier for you to accept criticism. You actually start craving them because you know this is how you can progress. This is how you can become better. You no longer fear them. You actually start to fear compliments because they're scary. Criticism are always wonderful. Compliments are the scary ones because they titillate your pride. You have to be careful of those. Unload them as quickly as you can. So again, when, one, when someone compliments you, take the compliment, give it to God, and forget about it. But the criticism are the ones you want to remember because that's how you can progress. That's how you can become better. Righteousness, therefore, is not a simple state. It's not reputation. It isn't what others say about you. It is how you stand before God. Therefore, it requires constant work. And that brings us to our subject today. Righteousness cannot grow in a vacuum. It needs a society. There are societies which, are, which favor righteousness, and there are societies which don't. And that's the battle of this chapter, and it's the battle of our life. If you live in the middle of a society that is centered on self, my space, my phone, my car, my life, my this, my that, it's very difficult. Let's say, let's say it's more difficult to be righteous because society is encouraging you to be the opposite if on the other hand you live in a society that is that really needs you to share what you have with others it's easier to be righteous so you need to be aware of the society that you live in and by this i mean not necessarily the society at large over which you don't have much com control but rather your immediate society who are your friends if amongst your friends there is one or two or more who have influence upon you and who are leading you towards selfishness, there is only one solution. You dump them because they're not your friends. If, on the other hand, there are friends among you, among your group, on whom you have influence, you want to keep those. By the way, you can tell if somebody's righteous by their friends. Because if they, if the collection of their friends are all cool, are all in, 
are all the kind of people you want to be around. They have the right shape, the right size, the right color, the right age. You know this person is in trouble. But if among their friends there is this one person who just doesn't fit that portrait, either because of size or maybe because they just can't be cool, they're kind of annoying, they're the kind of people who will ask you the same question three times and will call you again to ask you the same question again. They're not completely sure. They're kind of the losers. But if you truly value these people, if you truly appreciate them as a gift, you're on your way. And unless you ask these questions about yourself, all this Bible study and all the masses you can go to and all the rosaries you can say are not going to do you any good. Because it's this life that you have to live. It is by living this life that you show God what you truly believe in. And that's why it's important we reflect. We reflect constantly. Where am I today? And where am I going? What have I done yesterday? What am I doing today? What I plan to do tomorrow? Those are the things that either make us self-righteous or righteous. Let's go back to the chapter. There are, in chapter 19, essentially, two, three, four, five subdivision. Verses 1 through 5 is the arrival of the, of the angels at Sodom. Verses 6 through 11 is Lot's moral resistance to what is going around him. Verses 12 through 16, the deliverance of Lot and his family. Verses 23 through 39 is the catech. No, 29, I'm sorry, is the cataclysm. And in verses 30 to 38 is the birth of Moab and Ammon. Let's read this chapter, and I think you'll concur with me that it is not a pretty sight, to say the least. Please follow with me, chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, turn aside, I pray you, to your servant's house, and spend the night, and wash your feet, then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the street. But he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people of, to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out, to, of, uh, went out of the door to the men, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please." Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow come, came to sojourn, and he would play the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door. But the men put forth their hands, and brought Lot into the house to them, and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves gro groping for the door. Then the man said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has, beca has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. 
So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him forth and set him outside the city. And when they had brought them forth, they said, Flee for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Flee to the hills, lest you be consumed. And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot flee to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, yonder city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Make haste, escape there, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and beheld and, be, and, beheld, and lo, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. So he dwelt in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with our father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And on the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring through our father." So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn a son. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. First, it's interesting to compare and contrast the visitation of the Lord to Abraham and to Lot. In the case of Abraham, three men came to him in the middle of the day, not two, who came to, know, to, to Lot in the middle of the night. The night is always the symbol of darkness, the presence of the evil forces. The day is always the symbol of the truth. God came in person as a theophany to Abraham. But he sent angels only to Lot because it is not for those who are condemned to see the Lord. So, for instance, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that on our personal judgment that will happen right after we die, 
if we do not see the Lord, it is because we're condemned to hell. To see the Lord is actually the greatest thing can happen to the soul. So here, the Lord is not made present in Sodom and Gomorrah. He is actually, he actually stands away. In verse 1, Lot is sitting in the gate. Sitting in the gate is a strange expression for us. Nobody sits in the gate because our gates are very narrow. But in cities which are walled, this, the gate tends to be fairly thick. Yet it is not a literal expression. He's not sitting right there. To sit in the gate is effectively to sit in the center where the affairs of the community would be conducted in full view of everyone. So effectively, see what happened to Lot. First, Abraham told him, the land is too small for both of us. Which I choose the way you go, I'll go the other way. So he decided, out of greed, to go towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He dwelt in that region. Then he got closer. Then he went and dwelt in the city. And now he is sitting in the gate among the elder of the city. And his daughters are about to marry men of the city. He effectively is trying to become one of them. And all that drove him all the way through was his desire for prosperity. Now, prosperity is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, provided it is done for the Lord. So that's why, going back to my initial theme, unless you're examining yourself about all that God is giving you, you won't know what, whether you're doing it for righteousness or self-righteousness. St. John Chrysostom says this, Now the two angels, the text says, arrived at Sodom in the evening. The time in particular shows us this good man's extraordinary virtue in the fact that even despite the coming of evening, he stayed at his post and did not leave it. That is to say, since he realized the advantage accruing to him from that, consequently he was anxious to attain the wealth and brought great vigilance to bear, not even desisting at the end of the day. He was determined. He worked from morning to evening. In a sense, you might wonder if he wasn't a workaholic, really driven by the desire to attain wealth. He has a house, so we said he lived formerly in a tent near Sodom. That's in chapter 13, verse 12. And he became a townsman, and he resides in the city. But he still preserves the virtue of hospitality that is characteristic of pastoral society and of Abraham's family. He's still hospitable. He sees these men coming to him. He doesn't recognize them as angels. He sees men, and he immediately get up and offer them hospitality. So you notice that we can carry forward some of our virtues because of our past culture. We can do that. But if the core is gone, we're wasting our time. So among Catholics, particularly... I would say Irish, Polish, and Middle Eastern, there is a very strong phenomenon called cultural Catholicism, where you keep the cultural aspects of the faith, but you really don't know what you're doing, what you're doing it for. In the Middle Eastern culture, it's very pervasive, and you know it when men go to the church 
drop the wife and the kids inside the church and stand outside talking about politics. And then one time it's for communion, just get in, get in, get communion, go back and continue our conversation. You know that all that has remained for, for them is this cultural aspect of the faith. The faith is gone. Right? Now, we pray for them that they may be revived and may realize what they're doing. So you need, again, it's not enough to act like a Catholic. You have to be one. And you have to live like one. Lot, in verse 2, urges the men to come and stay with him. And he says, so that you may rise up early and go on your way. <clears throat> Why? Because he wants the strangers to get out of town before the townsmen realize that they're there for their own protection. This is how wicked the city is. The two men instead answers by saying, no, we will stay in the street. Actually, the Hebrew word is not street, it's square. So it's a broad, open square or a plaza. Right? So they're saying, no, I mean, so you, you might think either they're completely oblivious to what's going on, or they really know what they're doing. And in that case, they're angels. So we'll deal with what angels can do in a minute. Now, notice, from Lot's perspective, he did his duty. He went, he bowed down, he showed them respect, and he suggested that they come and stay with him. Two perfect strangers. He doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know that they're angels. He's just offering them hospitality. And they said, no, we're going to stay in the street. So you might say that from that standpoint, he did his duty. He could stop right there. And many of us, when we want to be hospitable, we will go the first step. So, for instance, um, we see our brother or our sister in the morning getting up and, setting and ready, getting ready for breakfast. And then we're in the kitchen. And we say, you want some cereals? And our sibling says, no, I don't want cereals. Okay. And it stops right there. True hospitality, if it really showed care, would go out and say, what do you want? What do you like? I'll prepare it for you. Now, that is true hospitality. Now, your brother and sister may say, what's wrong with you? Are you sick? Or, right? But nonetheless, that is true hospitality. You carry it forward. Right? You carry it forward. Now, in some of our communities, we take it too far. Right? Eat, eat, but I'm not hungry. Oh, you don't like my food. I love your food, then you have to eat. Well, that's not what I'm talking about either, right? When you force feed somebody and make him feel guilty if he doesn't eat. That is not hospitality. That is abuse. So, notice that he really carries it forward. No, you shouldn't do that, please. He urges them to come and stay with him. And so they do. And again, remember from our last study... The proper way of being hospitable is to offer a little initially and present a lot. And that is something that, again, is very much part of the Middle Eastern culture. So if you ever go to a Middle Eastern house and they say, why don't you come 4 o'clock for a coffee? You better fast for three days because you're not going to have coffee. All right? You're not going to be having coffee. You all know what I'm talking about, right? And as, as someone from the Middle East, I do admit that having lived here for 13 years and prior to that, another 13 years in Canada, I've been in, the Middle, in, the, in North America for quite some time, I am still shocked by the way people here handle food. It's my problem, not theirs. It's my problem. 
So when I invite people over to my place, they come and they bring food with them, which is shocking. Not only that, they actually eat their food. And the worst part of it, they take the rest back with them. I just can't understand that. It's jarring. It's not supposed to be like this. Now, it took me some time to figure out in the United States, food is not that important. This is not the end-all, be-all of things. When people get together, they really want to be together. They really don't care about food, etc., etc. I do admit also that the United States, Americans are the most generous people in the world, bar none. Nobody is as giving as far as helping people out with money as, as Americans. Rich or poor, everybody. Everybody. I mean, where else other than the United States you would go to a, a store and as you're paying with your credit card, they'll ask you, do you want to give a dollar for prostate cancer? I mean, in some countries it'll cause a revolution. Right? I mean, the mentality here is very, very strong that way, but as far as food is concerned, hospitality, non-existent. There's no concept of that. And I still have problems with it. Right? But that's how things work here. But in, back then, no. You really say, come over for a coffee, and there is a meal ready waiting for people. And that's exactly what happens here. He actually sets a meal to two strangers. These are not friends, not acquaintances. He's never seen these men before. I mean, the sense, the duty of hospitality is so strong that it really carries the day. It's something that we, we must, we sometimes have difficulty understanding. I think I've told you this once. Father Pacwa told us that uh, um, the king of Jordan was giving a tour of the desert to some of his guests. And as they were touring the desert, they came across a nomad who was on his horse. And they somehow entered his territory. And as soon as he saw them, he said, please sit here, you're my guests. And he prepared for them a feast. And it was only later that the king found out that this man had sold his horse to offer them a feast. I mean, that, that sense of, of, of hospitality as a duty is very, very strong in these cultures. And that's why you see him doing what he's doing. Otherwise, it sounds really crazy. Now, in verse 3, so in verse 3, he prepares a feast with wine, obviously, so it's a complete dinner. And he prepares unleavened bread, matzah in Hebrew, which is a flat cake baked before the dough has had time to rise. Why? Because you can prepare it very quickly. You know that if you, if you prepare dough, you have to let it rise, and it'll take hours. Well, if you have sudden visitors, you don't have time to let it rise, so you prepare a dough Quickly, that's what he did. Now, the men of Sodom, the phrase is a descriptive note. It essentially says that it is all the men. It tends to be completely inclusive to indicate that not even ten righteous men could be found. It doesn't necessarily mean that all the men had congregated at his door. A number of them were there, but that the entire male population has become complicit. And it's something that is really hard for us to even begin to imagine in one way. And I'll, and I'll, uh, I'll tell you why um, in a minute. But the men of Sodom came and basically, um, as we see in verse 4, from the young to the last man, again, this everybody, the choices were very deliberate. No decent men could be 
found in Sodom. And obviously, um, in verse 5, the intent is very, very clear. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. As you know, to know, sorry, as you've heard before, to know in, um, in Scripture is not simple rational knowledge. It's physical, sexual intercourse. So obviously what they're talking about here is a homosexual act. Being more specific, you, you might say it's even homosexual rape because they're not even asking the, whether they want it or not. They just say, we are going to do it. And that is really the interesting part of this. From this text alone, you cannot conclude that homosexuality is an evil. You can conclude that forced homosexuality is evil. But intrinsically, from this text, you can't conclude that homosexuality is evil. We need to understand this because it's a very important point. It is entirely possible for a homosexual couple to live to live in, um, in harmony with others. It's entirely possible for a homosexual couple to live without harming anybody else. In fact, to live dressed modestly and behaving very appropriately. So homosexuality doesn't necessarily imply right, um, immoral behavior. Well, does it mean, therefore, that homosexuality could be good? That's the argument that homosexuals will take. What is being condemned here is not homosexuality. It's actually the fact that this population wanted to force themselves on these men. And one might say that if these two angels, let's say, were women, and these men wanted to do this to the women, you have parity. Therefore, the conclusion might be, it doesn't, it's not homosexuality that is being condemned here. What is being condemned is the fact that these men wanted to force themselves on others. And the conclusion that they will take is, therefore, homosexuality is not condemned by Scripture. Well, homosexuality is condemned in texts such as Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 22 through 24, and chapter 20, verse 13 and 23. But we have to understand why homosexuality is a in a sense, is a worse sin than a rape. Because in a rape or in a man and a woman having extramarital relationships, what is going on is a violation of the moral law. The moral law is being violated. In the case of homosexuality, the moral law is being changed. Do you see the difference between the two? Homosexuality is saying that the fundamentals of the moral law, law are wrong. That sexuality isn't just between a man and a woman. What does that mean? It means that the notion that we have from Genesis, that God created man and woman in his image, and that he created them together in his image, in the relationship between man and woman, we image God as a family, that fundamental identity of man is wrong. Homosexuality strikes at the very core of creation. It completely deforms our understanding of creation. It, in fact, deforms the image of God in us. 
So homosexuality doesn't strike at the creature like extramarital relationships do. It strikes at the creator. That is why it is a far greater sin than extramarital relationships. Now, don't get me wrong. An extramarital relationship is a grave sin. I am not trying to tell you that um, it's a... I'm not trying to make light of it, right? You, you need to realize that any couple who find themselves in an extramarital relationship, by this I mean they're getting together, they're living together, and uh, they're not married, are in a grave danger. Because if they die in that state, they go to hell. But as I've told you many times, just as in heaven there are different degrees of glory, so there are in hell different degrees of pain. Pain is not the same. And the pain reserved to the sin of homosexuality is far greater than the pain reserved to the sin of, um, of lust or of adultery or of, or of uh, you know, treating sex as just, a, uh, just for enjoyment and nothing else. Any conception that transforms the image of God in us is a far greater danger than one that keeps it intact but tries to deviate from it. So in former times, we were in situations where people knew what was right and what was wrong, and they decided to act differently. Here, it's a new thing. It's elevating what is fundamentally wrong at the level of a law, making it be a law, a law of the country. It's effectively the torquing of the conscience to such a degree that evil becomes good and good becomes evil. It's such a blindness that it does remind us of what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it becomes very, very hard to curb after a while. It becomes impossible to curb. Now, you have a group like Courage. I don't know how many of you have heard of Courage. Yeah, not, not too many, and I, I'm not surprised. Courage is actually a group that is within the Catholic Church of people who have homosexual tendencies, but who live chastely. And these men and women will, will have much to say about the homosexual lifestyle and what it really means and what hides behind all the glamour. And they will recognize that even though they may still have those tendencies, they don't act according to them. Because we're not supposed to act according to our uh, appetite. We are supposed to take our appetite and make them follow right reason. And we call this virtue. We call this virtue. When our appetites are trained to act according to right reason, we are virtuous. An interesting thing, obviously, is that vir, the root of the word virtue in Latin, means man. Again, in a generic sense, not in the masculine sense. In other words, uh, the, the, to be a, a member of the human race is effectively to be virtuous. So, there is this anonymous quote that says, Their habitual injustice to human beings eventually led the sodomites to violence against angels. Bad morals are therefore a, a, a harmful and destructive thing even if not immediately. Even if not immediately. And that is why a society that is not watchful anymore, a society that doesn't uh, correct small deviation from the moral law, will inevitably, over time, collapse. As simple as that. 
uh, I don't need to know what's going on in uh, the hip places of New York or San Francisco to get a good sense of what the society is at. All I have to do is go to Mass on Sunday in a Catholic church and watch how women are dressed. That's all I have to do. Or, in general, how, how Catholics are dressed. You know, flip-flops, sandals, shorts, right? Hawaiian shirt, no ties, no suits, not being on your best because you're coming to the Lord. So you know, if in the Catholic church this is happening, what would you expect outside? Okay. Now, let's talk about Lot's response, which is obviously very unsettling to us. Because Lot said, let me reread it to you. He says, verse 8, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But what is he trying to do here? First, well, all right, from, from a very cultural point of view, obviously this is an age where the patriarch possessed absolute power over the members of his clan, and daughters were held in low esteem. Okay? You might look at it this way and say that's what's being reflected here. Right? That daughters are not as important. But the key, though, is that he's a father. He has two daughters, and there are two strangers in his house. Why is he acting like this? Why is he acting like this? And to condemn him before you understand why he's acting like this is not to understand him at all, and therefore to miss the point. In Judges chapter 19, we learn that the very opposite of hospitality toward a stranger is rape. This is how they characterize it in Book of Judges, chapter 19. Not to be hospitable towards strangers is the same thing as raping them. Our problem is we don't have that sense of hospitality. So, maybe to help you understand it, you know how in California there is a very powerful sense of lawsuits. People understand lawsuits, even five-year-old. I want an ice cream. No, I'll sue you. No clue what that means, but they know what it means, I'll sue you. So people here are growing up with this notion of lawsuits. And they can discuss and debate lawsuits, and are familiar with it. Well, try to sort of take that familiarity and then multiply it by ten and apply it to hospitality. That's how important it was for this culture. So to Lot, to allow two people who have come under his roof, under his protection, to allow them to be, for for him to give them out in order to protect his family is to do the exact opposite of hospitality. And then he would know that under those conditions, he essentially violated the law of God. And he would rather have his own family harmed rather than put people who come under his protection, harmed. We don't have that sense today. So, therefore, it's really hard for us to even accept that. Uh, maybe the only sense that we might have is the secrecy of the confessional. If a criminal goes into a confessional and confesses to a priest that he has committed a crime, the priest is held by the secrecy of confessional. He cannot reveal that to anyone. 
There's a great movie called I Confess by Hitchcock. If you haven't seen it, I recommend you see it. Because the man goes into confessional, confesses his sin to the priest, and goes out and frames the priest. And the priest cannot say. So it's worth watching. That is a sense of a protection that goes beyond your own life. Now, in the case of the priest, his own life or his own reputation is on the line. None of his other family members is the same thing. You're held to a higher ideal than your immediate family. That's how you have to understand it. Okay? You might also say that Lot is shrewd. He's dealing with homosexuals. He doesn't say, take me or my son. He said, I got two daughters. Potentially, he's also gambling. He's, he's, wage, he, he, he's, he's taking a bet that these men are not interested in his daughters. He probably knows. He's been living among them for so long. Yeah, so again, it's worth quoting. In Judges chapter 19, it says that if something like that happens in Israel, if someone in Israel, in all of Israel, would allow strangers who came under his roof to be ill-treated, or if harm happens to them, then the exodus out of Egypt might just as well not have taken place. This is Judges chapter 19, verse 30. This is how strong this is. If someone in Israel, anybody in Israel does that, all of Israel suffers. So that's the context behind what we see here. Now the response by the, by the Sodomites is that they first of all call Sodom this fellow, that stranger one. Right? Uh, Lot is reminded of his isolation. He's a, he's a stranger, he's an alien. He has no legal rights. So if you think about the fact that he pitched his tent near Sodom, then he had settled in Sodom. Now he lives in, their, in, in a house there. He sits in the gate with the, with the elders. His, his daughters are about to intermarry with local men. And despite all of this, he's still an alien. And he has no right. So then the angels now take action to protect him. He, they draw him back in and blind these men. And this physical blindness is nothing more than it's a symptom of their spiritual blindness. They cannot see the wrong they're committing. They're blinded to it. And to make you understand that, again, compare it to people today who, let's say, read their horoscope. They're Catholics, they go to church, and they open the newspaper and read their horoscope. They think it's just the most normal thing to do, read your horoscope. Which is strictly forbidden in um, Deuteronomy. Can't do that. Or, among some of our Middle, Middle Eastern culture, they drink coffee, turn the cup around, and then turn it back up and start looking into it, and they see white horses and a whole zoo, and they predict the future. And they think there's nothing wrong with it, and they just go to church. Why? Their conscience is blinded because they don't know the truth. Or again, they walk around wearing this blue, big blue thing against the evil eye. Now, don't get me wrong. The evil eye can and does exist. Yeah, there can be hexes and spells and curses put on you. That's true. But you don't defend them with a blue thing. You defend them with the cross of Jesus Christ. And only with His cross. So many of our actions sometimes can be filled with 
cultural things that don't belong to the faith. And if we don't examine ourselves, we just incorporate them. You can't cross over somebody because it's something bad happens to you. And if you have a shoe that falls the face up, something bad happens to you. And the black cat, and I mean, all that nonsense can penetrate our conscience if we're not careful. And we don't see it. We don't see the evil in it. We just do it. Right? And you have those who go to Las Vegas. Right? And they're not mindful at all of what's going on over there, what is the city is all about, and the purpose of this whole thing. They don't even wonder about it. It's fun. And on and on the list can go. Some who watch R-rated movie with sexuality in it, and they don't think anything about it. And then they go to Mass. The power of our faith is to make us one, whole. Jesus said, let your yes be yes. Be yes. So what you say is what you do. Let your no be no. What you say is what you do, and what you do is what you say. Anything else is from the devil. Faith brings men to unity. Unity with God. Unity with amongst men. Unity within himself. Psychologically, spiritually, sexually, physically. Man becomes one through the work of grace. So... In verses 12 through 16, um, the, only, the, the, the angels speak of the outcry against Sodom. Now, the really strange thing is that uh, before this chapter, we've never heard of any outcry whatsoever against Sodom. Nothing. It just shows up here. So where's that outcry? Well, we can take a clue from the book of Revelation... In chapter 6, I believe. In, in, cha- in chapter 6, I'm sorry, chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to mingle with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense rose with the prayers of the saints from the hand of the angel before God. Okay? And the purpose here is that the saints in heaven are interceding for us. And their prayers are presented by the angels before the throne of God. So, what we get from this is that even after death, there are cries that are rising up to God. And justice will be met. Justice will be given. God will complete His work at the appointed time. Now, Lot goes out and tells his, his future sons-in-laws, because they're betrothed, you should come with us because the city is about to destroy it. And I thought he was joking. It would be like somebody running in a church right now saying you need to get out because San Diego is about to be destroyed. Especially if he looked disheveled and uh, looked a little bit weird. We'd think, oh, he's, he's, he's joking. Right? It's hard to hear the truth if we don't hear it habitually. If we don't hear the voice of Jesus every day, it's hard to hear his voice. It's not that easy. Somehow people think that the hour of their death, uh, somehow 
you know, they're going to go on autopilot mode. And they're going to just sail smoothly. They don't... We're not given to think about how we're going to die. We don't spend time thinking about it. Okay, how am I going to die? What is going to happen when I die? Well, when we die, eventually, all our body functions are going to shut down, right? In particular, hearing. We're not going to hear anything because the body function is shutting down. Seeing, we're not going to see anything. We're going to go blind. So we don't hear anything. We don't see anything. Yeah? We probably are going through suffering, so we're not feeling very good. But our brain, our brain is a muscle, right? So our thought process isn't in our brain, it's in our soul. And it functions in the world through our brain, the muscle. When the brain shuts down, our thought process doesn't stop. It continues. So therefore, thoughts are something we can hear. Yes? So just as today, you might be doing, washing the dishes or doing something, and a thought comes to you, not spoken, not heard, not seen, it just comes. So it will be at the moment of death. When you're going through a traumatic, at least we could say, experience. Something you've never experienced before. And never again. It's a one-time deal. Okay. Now, right then, when you can't hear anybody, you can't see anything, but thoughts can come to you. What do you think the devil is going to do right at that moment? Is he going to just sit idle and watch you? And see you, you know, sort of strolling or cruising on this white boat? Is, he, is this what he's going to do? The devil is pure hatred. It's something we can't even understand. No human being is pure hatred. The devil is pure hatred. And he's a spirit. He's so powerful, he could just, if God would not stay his hand, he'd eat us in a second. He'd destroy the whole human race in a second. This is how powerful this thing is. And he's got, oh, you know, millions of demons with him. What do you think he's going to do when we are dying? He's going to send hundreds of thousands of demons to completely overpower us to do what? What can he do? Can he drag us into hell? Does he have that power? No, he doesn't, right? Another thing that most of us confuse when we hear in the Gospels, when Jesus says, do not be afraid of the one who can kill the body, fear the one who can kill the soul. And everybody typically thinks, oh, he's talking about the devil. The devil can kill the soul. Actually, no, the devil cannot kill the soul. The only one who can kill the soul is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he meant. But the, can the devil drag us in hell? Can he put a chain around us and drag us? Is, does, he, does he have that power? No. What can he do? Only one thing. Whisper in our ear, right? But he can whisper so powerfully, so effectively. He can get us to think about all those bad things we've done in our life. All the things we regretted. All the things we didn't go to confession for. And they're still nagging us. And he can put this whole picture before us. To help us conclude what? Conclude what Judas concluded. We can't be saved. He wants us to do one thing. Despair. And once we despair, we're His. So if you've lived a life 
that has never been examined, if we don't go to confession regularly, if we don't really work to hear the word of the Lord every day, if we don't work to ask the protection of Our Lady, if we don't work to honor her, if we don't do our best to say to the Lord we love Him, how can we hear His voice in the middle of this mayhem? People think that when you die, it's going to be this moment of silence. Not at all. You're going to be dumped into the worst heavy metal concert of your life. The noise coming from the demons is going to be so high, they absolutely want to drown any other voice, especially yours trying to pray. Now, if during our life we prayed, we asked for protection, we told Our Lady, we befriended our guardian angel, we learned to hear his voice, we work on all these things, we ask God to be with us at the moment of our death, to protect us, to make sure we don't die of a sudden death, rather be prepared to receive the last uh, sacrament. If we've prayed and worked diligently and took our death seriously, then guess what? The picture is entirely different. Because then God puts a shield around us. It's now all this noise is completely dampened. We don't hear it as much. And then when the shepherd calls our name, we respond. Because we know his voice and we can respond. We're here to die. We are here to prepare for that moment. That's what we're here for. In fact, there is a man who had in front of his bed, Father Isaac told us when he was here, did a retreat, a statement that said, so-and-so born on such a day, and then every night he would put the date of that day, died on, and he would look at it. And that's not being morbid, it's just being attentive. And being careful. Okay, I might die today. Am I ready? Can I go today? If I'm called. I don't know where I'm going to go. Am I ready? So again, you can't just put death on a shelf or on autopilot and think, it's just going to happen smoothly. You have to work at it. That means get to know the Lord. Pray. Hope in Him. Ask Our Lady's protection. Call upon your guardian angel. Surround yourselves with friends who will be there and will help you cross that bridge. So then they thought they were his jesting and they just didn't follow him. And so they left. They left and they were told not to look behind them. What, the meaning of this isn't that they are not allowed to see what is going to happen. As in the wrath of God is not something a man can see. It's not at all that. It's not that God is trying to keep that a secret from them. Not to look behind you means do not long for what you lost. It means when you're gone, understand you're leaving an evil place. Don't look back saying, I wish I didn't have to go. And that's what happened to Lot's wife. When she looked back, she wasn't, it wasn't, you know, I've heard some explanation. That, well, you know, women are so curious, they just can't hold themselves back. They have to look and see what happened. And that's why she, no, not at all. This is nonsense. She was hooked on that lifestyle and couldn't give it up. That's what happened to her. Now, the cataclysm happens in verses 23 through 39. The best explanation we have from a physical standpoint is the following. 
The whole region, the entire Jordan Valley, is part of the Syrian-African Rift, a gigantic fracture in the crust of the earth caused by a series of geological spasms. It stretches from Syria in the north down to the Arabah, to the Gulf of Aqaba, through the Red Sea, to the Upper Nile Valley, and on to Lake Nyasa in East Africa. It's a very long um, rift. So it is entirely possible what happened was an earthquake. Why can we think it's an earthquake? Because when an earthquake happens, a violent earthquake, um, lightning is always um, lightning always happens in violent earthquakes. And this is a region full of what? Oil and sulfur. So it's entirely possible that lightning may have hit pools of oil and sulfur and blew up the entire region, put it on, on fire. And when sulfur du- burns, you cannot stop sulfur with water. You know that. When sulfur burns, if you put water on it, it burns even more. So it's entirely possible this is how it took place. Now, I'm not giving you a natural explanation, so to say that God didn't do it. I'm just saying that God typically works through nature. He doesn't have to work outside of nature to make things happen. So that's all I'll say about that. The one thing I would add is that in the gospel, our Lord says this. If, the, if he says, the people of Sodom are less worthy of damnation than all those who neglect the gospels. Remember in, in when he was in, um, in uh, the city of St. Peter and uh, Capernaum and other cities, he had this to say about them. He says that if the miracles, the signs that he did in, had happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. So therefore, the cities in which he was would have a more severe judgment against them than Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because they would not acknowledge the signs he gave them. Do you realize that those who deny that Jesus is God are committing a moral sin? It's a very serious sin. So again, you have Catholics who have absolutely no problem to use the name of the Lord in vain. They use it as a swear word and I think nothing of it. And they don't realize what they're doing. So if nothing else, if by your conduct you can bring people not to swear, in general, not to swear at all, because they know you don't like it, and you can make it known to them that, please, when you're around me, don't swear. Then if nothing else, you're lessening their punishment. If anything, you may be opening their minds to the possibility of a change of heart. That how you can witness just by your conduct. And it's a good thing. So we can't neglect the Gospels. Because neglect of the Gospels is worse than the crime committed in Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because he died for it. Neglecting the Gospel is saying to Jesus, I don't really care what happened to you. So what does it mean to neglect the Gospels in practice? Does this mean we have to memorize it back, you know, front and back and be able to quote it? No. What it means is that we need to know the principles of our faith. We need to know what the church teaches. That's what it means. We need to know how to live as Catholics. Because when we live as Catholics, we are living the gospel. You understand that the church is far more important than the gospels. The church is way more important than the Bible. Jesus didn't come to write a book. He came to 
to find to to create a church and only one his bride the church is his bride not the book as important as it is it is not anywhere close to being as important as the church is because the church god didn't die for a book he died for the church you understand that so we can't say that we love jesus if we don't love the church now to love the church doesn't mean that we ignore all the problems around us that's not what i mean but i mean that we love the teachings of the church we understand that the church is holy and the church is our mother and if we don't we have to pray to our lady and she will instill in us a love of the church but we have to love the church okay so then he escapes <clears throat> to the name to the name of the city that was zoar and um, Zawar literally means little town. He said, can I escape to this little town? And that's why the name of the city was Little Town. All right? That's what Zawar means. And it was the city of the fifth nameless king in chapter 14. So there were four cities that got destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah. And... Two more cities that I didn't highlight here. If I come across them in my notes, I'll tell you about them. So now you know why she turned into a pillar of salt. I told you about that. So I'm not going to spend time on this. Pardon? Um, because, well, let me ask you this question. Why salt? Salt of the earth. Salt of the earth. No. Salt preserves life. You're closer, but not because it preserves life. Destroys land? No. Remember, anytime you have questions like these, it's the simplest answers that are typically right. Think about, try to put yourself in that situation. All right? If you wanted salt, you live in one of those cities. You wanted salt, what do you do? You go to Vaughn's and, and you buy yourself a pack of salt? How do you get salt? Is it cheap? Is it cheap to get salt? It's very expensive. Salt was called the white gold. Very expensive. Do you understand now why she turned into a pillar of salt? Right? Because that's wealth. She became what her eye wanted. Wealth. Good question. And now we have this really interesting situation where you have Lot and his two daughters in the cave. Now... You have to see it from their eyes. Leaving the city, they only can see fire all around them. Five cities are burning. At least four cities are burning. It's cataclysmic. And back then, they don't have cell phones. So they can't call their buddies up in you know, the mountains where their uncle is and say, how are you doing up there? So what, what are they to conclude? The whole world is going. What does that suggest? They haven't heard a word of what the angel said. They, are, they can't even fathom why this is happening to them. They haven't connected two and two. Because you would think, if they did connect two and two, um, Lot would not go up a cave. Where would he go? Pardon? Let's say, no, there are no cities. Where would he go? Abraham. He'd go to his 
uncle to Abraham. But he can't even do that. Instead, he goes and hides in a cave. And you would notice that the intent of the daughters isn't uh, a sexual perversion. They think of themselves as being completely all alone, and they want to, as they say, preserve the race, right? But really what they're thinking about is their own self. They're alone. And by bringing forth children, they'll have someone to support them. And that's what they do. How ironic. The man who was willing to expose his daughters to evil men end up being tricked by his own two daughters. How ironic. How sad. You know, that's the last time we hear of Lot. We don't hear of him anymore. How sad. How the turns of event happened. He went down to get himself wealth. And look what happened. Lost his wife. And he had two boys. He couldn't know what to call them. Is he the father or the grandfather? This pattern is set before our eyes for one reason. When we look at it, we see a man who was fundamentally good by human standards. He worked hard. He didn't steal from his neighbor. He didn't try to do anything that was um, despicable or blatantly wrong. All he wanted to do was a comfortable life. All he wanted was a comfortable life. What was the one thing that was missing? His love for God. He wasn't doing it for God. He was doing it for himself. How is it in our own life? Do we wake up every morning and offer our day to the Lord? Fathers, do you wake up every morning and say to the Lord, whatever suffering happens this day, I offer this to you in reparation for my sins and the sins of my family. Do you accept those sufferings and willingly offer them up for your family? Mothers, have you offered your children to God already? What would you do if God were to take your child tomorrow? Would you become absolutely inconsolable? Would you, be, would you fall into depression? Would you become incapable of living? Is God the center of your life or your children? Are you afraid to die? Is death something that frightens you? Or is death the antechamber of the wedding feast of the Lamb? Are you looking forward to that moment? Or do you fear it? O oh, death, where is your sting? Ask us St. Paul. Do you trust that everything that happens to you today and tomorrow is given to you as a gift by the loving hand of God? Even when it tastes bitter? Or do you consider God to be Santa Claus? Dear God, I love you. Signed, me. P.S. Here are the list of things I want. Do you commit yourself to become truly followers of Christ every day? Today better than tomorrow and tomorrow better than today. Those are the questions. This is what the story tells us. Where would you feel more comfortable? Being the next American Idol? 
or spending a couple of hours in silence before the Blessed Sacrament. You can ask yourself those questions and answer truthfully. You know, St. Augustine, St. Augustine is one of my favorite saints. When he was 30 years old, he was married to a woman who was 18, and he was in the process of divorcing her to marry one who was 12. But thanks to his holy mother, he converted. When he converted, he would, he would, one of his prayers was, God, give me chastity, but not today. He was realistic. That's what I love about him. He knew human weaknesses. He didn't try to pretend to be what he wasn't. And that's why it made him, God made him such a great saint. Do you know yourself? Do you know where you are? Do you know where you're going? None of this Bible study would do us any good if at the end of the day it doesn't bring us before the Blessed Sacrament in a heart-to-heart loving conversation with our Lord. If it doesn't bring us there, we might as well start a Protestant church. There's a whole bunch out there. Not going to do us any good. You want to end up like Lot or like Abraham? Those are the two. Those are the two examples set before our eyes for this reason. Where are you going? So between now and when we come back in September, I would recommend that you take this time to do a couple of things. Pick up a life of a saint. Read one book on the life of a saint. I'll give you a couple of titles. One which is short. For those of you who are not big readers, or those of you who start reading and then fall asleep, this is a short book, and it's called Wisdom's Fool. Wisdom's Fool. Wisdom's Fool. Fool as an F-O-O-L. And that's the life of Saint Louis de Montfort. St. Louis de Montfort, Wisdom's Fool. It's about 150 pages long. It's a wonderful book. If you don't know who St. Louis de Montfort is, he's a great saint that you should get to know. Wisdom's Fool. For those among you who like to read, especially the young ladies here, I wholeheartedly recommend a book written by a Jew. His name is, the last name is Werfel, W-E-R-F-E-L. Franz Werfel. Franz Werfel. I think Franz. I'm not sure of the first name. I'm not sure of sure the last. W-E-R-F-E-L. Werfel was a great friend of Kafka, if you've ever heard of Kafka. Living in the Second World War, he was a journalist outspoken against the Nazis. He was on a top ten list of people they wanted dead. So when the Nazis came to power, he fled to France. And then France fell, so he went down to the south trying to hide, trying to get into Spain, which was at the time... Uh, neutral, but Spain closed its borders. He got stuck down there in the southwest of France, and they told him the only place you can hide, find a cilium, is in Lourdes. So he went and hid in Lourdes. And he read in the newspaper that he was dead. He was a very well-known uh, author. And his wife was the widow of uh, Mahler, the musician, and she was able to go around. So being stuck in Lourdes, nothing to do, he got interested by the story of St. Bernadette, which had happened about 70 years prior and is very well documented. So he asked his wife to go and get him as many documents as she could on those events, which she did. And one day he wandered out, and you would read that in the introduction, and went to the grotto and said, 
I have heard that there was a woman who was close to God who appeared here. If this woman would allow my wife and I to escape to America, I promise to set everything aside and sing the song of Bernadette, the name of the title, the title of the book, the song of Bernadette, written by a Jew. It's amazing. The song of Bernadette. And that's what happened. They miraculously escaped. They arrived in the United States. He set everything aside and wrote that book. Read that book. You want to know strength? You want to know charity? You want to know love of God? You want to, know, you want to meet a woman who is absolutely amazing and deserving of all respects and admiration? Bernadette Subiru? Read this book. Then, if you have not done that before, find yourself a nice little examination of conscience and promise yourself that you will sit down at least once a week and examine your conscience. Start that. And the last thing I would recommend is go to confession. And if you've been going to confession once a year, go twice a year. If you're going twice a year, go four times a year. Whatever you're doing, double it. Just double it. Up to weekly. If you can, go weekly. And see what happens to you. See how God transforms your life through confession. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.